Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be back here on the East Coast in Halifax, and uh, if I can say home, uh, it really is. This is certainly uh, a home for us, and we just love it here. Um, thank you, Glenn, for all those nice words. I don't know who you were talking about. I think you got a, a little bit mixed up there, but I'll, I'll, take, I'll take what I can get. But thank you to Pastor Glenn and Pastor Debbie um, for uh, allowing me to come and chat with you this morning and uh, to hear what the, the Lord is saying to us together. Um, but I have to say, wow, I'm just, uh, I, I'm just lucky to be here this morning. And uh, I don't think that you all know just how blessed and lucky you are. Um, what a great morning, what great worship, what a great team, um, Pastor Nate and Jordan and Pete Darrow. I mean, Pete Darrow, everybody, like seriously, like this guy, I mean, you know, I've been lucky this year and blessed to be, uh, uh, you know, traveling and, and been in a lot of churches, probably about 20 already this year and way more church services than that. And just coming into uh, the, the authentic worship that faith is, is just is. Um, means so much. And uh, so thank you to the team and thank you to everybody here to open up your hearts and worship God the way uh, that you've done. And so this morning, I, I feel like the Lord has something uh, on my heart for me and for you, for all of us. And Pastor Glenn framed that today, talking about our burdens and pain and challenge that we may have come in to the room with this morning. But I believe that you're not going to leave that way. Amen. Uh, I'm not going to leave that way. Neither are you that God has something for us today to encourage us to change us uh, and to move us to the next level in what he's called us to do. Um, and so in the a video that you just saw, that video celebrates a number of missionaries to Canada, um, basically. And, uh, and today I, I bring a big warm hello from uh, your general superintendent, David Wells, who you know, who's been here before. Uh, I get to spend time working for him, and he's a great leader, and as well as Brian Eggert. Some of you know Brian was here with you last year. And Brian leads Mission Canada, which is this idea that we need to have home missions. We believe in international missions for sure. I know this is a church that supports that in a great, great way. And we also recognize there are times where we need, we need to minister to our our own country. Uh, the number of people that are coming to Canada now from around the world is astounding. And in fact, uh, they're sending missionaries to us and praise God that they are because we need all the help that we can get to win people to Christ. And so Mission Canada is geared around that. And then uh, Surf Campus Network, which many of you know uh, I'm now the director of, is our PAOC outreach to campuses. And basically, we, we serve students. Um, uh, you know, we do that here at Faith. You guys are into that. You do that. Pastor Jordan and the team down at Dalhousie and Evensong, we celebrate that right across the country, what's happening uh, here. And uh, we, we were about serving students. And so you heard from a few of those workers there. Please be in prayer for them. We need to pray. The harvest is great, but the workers are few. And so we need more workers. And so we're praying that God will raise people up who have a sense of calling to go all around the world, certainly in global missions, but also to pick up that mantle here. And I know that's part of the DNA of this church, and we celebrate that this morning. And so uh, right now uh, with Surf Campus Network, just by way of interest and just so you're aware, I mean, there's some great things happening, and faith is a part of that. Right now we're on 54 campuses of 220 in the country with some sort of life-giving disciple-making sense of sharing Christ. But there's a lot of work left to be done. 54 of 220 is good, but we want to get, uh, we want to move those numbers. And so we've set a goal by the end of 2020 to be on 100 campuses across the country. So that gives us about two and a half years. And, uh, and we're praying to God to help us with that, to raise up people uh, and raise up churches, because I believe so much of this work can be accomplished through the local church. 
The harvest is great. It's great on our campuses. It's great in our schools. It's great in our cities. The harvest is great, but the workers are few. And so we're excited to see what God will do. We have another uh, interesting partnership, actually an exciting one. I'm using the word exciting a lot today. I'll find another word here in a moment. Um, but uh, uh, we're, we're thrilled about this, that um, Alpha Canada and Serve Campus uh, Network, we're going to be partnering together during the school year of 2019-2020 um, to bring Alpha. And we've picked Alpha. I mean, it could be anything, but the main thing is bringing the gospel, right? But bringing that story to every campus in the nation twice. So in 2018, sorry, in the fall of 2019 through the winter of 2020, uh, that'll run twice. And I'm staring at Jordan right now because we're signing them up to do it in Halifax a few times. And, and, you know, there's not necessarily any more power in Alpha than there is in anything else. But the idea is the power of the message of hope, right? The message of Jesus. And so we're going to work together to bring that to all the campuses in the nation and believing that the Lord will give a mighty harvest. But that's a little bit about what we're up to. Diana and the kids say a big hello to you. And uh, we love this church. Uh, I, I just, I was so excited to be here with you today, and it's a blessing. Um, there's so much right uh, about this uh, church, about this community of believers, and I, I just know that God is um, ready to bring in a great harvest, and uh, just that your faith would be stretched this morning right along with mine so that we can see what the Spirit is saying, so we can hear what the Spirit is saying to us. And so I'm going to read from uh, 2 Samuel chapter 21 this morning, and if you want to follow along in your Bible, you can. We'll do a bit of reading up front here and then talk about a few of these scriptures and then worship together in a little bit. 2 Samuel chapter 21. The subtitle is David Avenges the Gibeonites, and it says this, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year after year. And then David sought the face of the Lord And the Lord said, there's blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And how can I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, it's not a matter of silver or gold because uh, between us and Saul or his house, neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, what do you say that I shall do for you? And they said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us. So that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath the Lord uh, that was between them and between David and Jonathan and the son of Saul. And the king took two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and five sons of Merib, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Brazili, the Meholothite. But notice the, the star. There may be a star or a letter uh, next to the name Merib. Just, just hang on to that thought. Or it might be Michael in your, in your scripture. But just hang on to that. We'll, we'll talk about that later. Verse 9. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord, and seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of the harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until the rain fell uh, from heaven. 
And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went out and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan that had been stolen from the public square where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul in Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul, the bones of his son Jonathan, And they were gathered together with the bones of those who were hung. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zelah, in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. Lord, we just thank you that your spirit is here with us this morning, God. We thank you that uh, in worship, when we come together, when we read your word, when we pray, even when we sing, God, as we gather together and worship together, You are here with us, and you're here to speak. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite you to speak. Would you illuminate the scriptures to us and help us to hear your word, each of us, Lord? I pray to find good ground in our hearts. Lord, I pray that I would leave this place changed along with everyone else. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A lot of of scripture this morning, but it's good to read the Bible. Amen? So many of you know Judson, my son. Judson is four now. And uh, he's, he's quite the little character. Uh, I don't know who he's really like in our family. I don't know who he's really like, but he's got these interesting tendencies. And one of them is this. I got to spend quite a bit of time with him in the fall, just being able to be home with him more. And I'd let him make you know, a pretty good mess playing with his toys and stuff. Him and Isabel both. If Diana's away, my wife traveling for work, you know, the house kind of gets a little, little crazy for a bit. But then we, we tidy it up. And I'm like, Judson, okay, it's time to put away the toys. And he just looks at me. And thinks, but I didn't take them out. Well, who took them out? Well, Isabel did, but you're playing with them now. Yeah, but Isabel took them out. I didn't take them out. There's always this little debate with him, you know, like who, who did what and who held it last, and that's the person that should put it back. Cracks me up. I didn't, I didn't take them out. Or, or this one, I didn't do it. Parents, have you ever heard that? I didn't do it. He's got this real, like, annoyance in his voice. I didn't do it. I'm like, well, who did it? Isabel. <laughs> Isabel, did you do that? No, I didn't take that out, Dad. I don't know what he's talking about. I didn't do it. And this idea that I'm not responsible, Dad, I don't have responsibility because I didn't take the toys out. I'm like, dude, well, you've been playing with them for an hour. Let's, you know, get them back in the box. A little bit of resistance, you know, this idea of responsibility, you know, sometimes for the mess that we didn't make, you know, who's supposed to clean it up? The mess that we didn't make, we often feel like we shouldn't have to clean it up, right? And I don't really actually think that's a, a, a biblical truth. I think when you look at Jesus and the way he walked into situations that were messy, what did he do? He cleaned them up. I can think of uh, in John chapter, I believe it's chapter 8, perhaps it's the woman who's caught in, in, the, in adultery, right? The woman caught in adultery, many of us know that story She's accused, she's guilty, she's thrown before the Lord, and, uh, and they want to stone her, which was the law. I mean, it's horrible, horrible. We're going from fun, I didn't do it, right, to something serious and real. I'm sorry about that, but we're just trying to get somewhere fast this morning. And she's cast before Jesus, and he doesn't say, yeah, go ahead. She did what you're saying, she did, it's, it's her fault. They even had the weight of the law for them. And Jesus stood between her and the stones and said, no, no, no. No, if you don't have sin in your own life, then, yeah, go ahead, cast the first stone. And everybody, what, walked away. 
And then he dignified uh, this young woman and said, go and sin no more. And I find in the church many times we want to start with go and sin no more. We want people to clean everything up before we make room and space for them. And that's really not the kingdom of God. Jesus comes and says, no, come alongside. I, I know you didn't do it, and I know you don't want to clean it up, and let me help you with that. Often in life, there are things that we don't want to take responsibility for. The challenges that we face in our society, often we stand on the sidelines and let the pitch go by. We often do that. And here in this text this morning, this is what we want to get to and consider and think. It's the same in the spiritual sense. Here you have young men who are hung before the Lord. And this is a bit of a sidebar. Young men, seven of them hung before the Lord to help pay off this blood guilt. And that wasn't a situation of their choosing. It wasn't their fault there was a famine in the land. It wasn't David's fault there was a famine in the land. But it went back where? To another generation, to Saul. And here you have the sons of that generation paying the price with their lives for the mistake of their fathers and their mothers and the generation that had gone before them. And I would submit to you today that all across this country on our campuses, all across this country in our society, when it comes to millennials and Generation X who went before them and Generation Z, we have sons and daughters paying a price spiritually And we stand on the sidelines at times, and we're okay with that, when really they're suffering because of the generation that has gone before them. May not be too nice to hear that today, but it is is the truth. We see it in our world in different ways. This week I was reading the the Financial Post, the uh, section of the National Post. You'll see this story in other financial newspapers, and it was talking about the fact that Social Security in the United States, this was a U.S. fact, but it was a Canadian article, by 2024 will be bankrupt. Now, to Canadians, that doesn't mean so much, but what that is is the future. That is the retirement plan for so many. But let me tell you, it doesn't affect the baby boomer generation doesn't affect most of the people gathered in this room, if you are Americans, but it affects my age and younger. There will be nothing left for them. And economists are saying the wages that they are making will not allow them to live the lives that most of us are living. When there was downturns in the economy in 2008 and earlier, there were opportunities to buy stock, opportunities to invest. And do you know that most people my age and younger had no chance of doing that because they're so weighed down in debt There's no savings account, but who benefited again? Baby boomers. Thousands and thousands of millionaires in the last 10 years. We've had downturns in the economy, but man, people are getting richer and richer. And that's okay. I mean, I I don't think we need to be afraid of money. I think we need to use it for the kingdom. But the point simply is this, is that there is very little thought being given in our society to the price that the generations to come are going to pay what they're being weighed down with. Those are financial things, but I think there's something even more important, which is the spiritual side. Did you know that for every five students that will go out into the world and go into a a university campus and study, five of them, if you're in grade 12 or heading into college first year, just stand up for a second. Just five of you. I just want five of you to stand. Just anywhere, everywhere. Come on, just do it. It's all right. Don't be embarrassed. Ah, it's okay. We're not going to make fun of you. Come on, there's a few more. Cheryl, you're almost there. Where's Cheryl? Cheryl's not quite in grade 12, but somebody, so, like, there's more than one. Okay, four of you stand. So I got five people. Come on. You're not in university, but you don't work for me, but you can still listen to me every now and then. It's five people, right? And they all go off to college. All of them. 
And they're like really great and everything and nice and Pete's real nice and super. But you know what? He starts partying too much and getting a little crazy. So off goes one out of the kingdom of the Lord for a while. Pete's done. And Jordan seems really nice and all that, but she gets into some bad habits, you know, and I don't know. I won't put any labels on you, Jordan, but her attendance starts to fade, not in church as much, not in the community as much, and all of a sudden that relationship with Christ kind of starts to sour. Mackenzie, who, by the way, Mackenzie's got a ministry of hugging. At the end of the service, if you got pain and challenge, she's got the gift of hugs. Just come on and see her. But maybe she was doing a little too much, too much hugging in university, and so Mackenzie, out she goes. out of the. I know, but listen, it's college ministry, all right? Don't take offense. And Brother Nate, I don't know. I mean, we can imagine all sorts of things, so we'll just let you sit down and say. And there's what? How many's left? One. Just stay standing for a second and sit down a minute. One. Right now, when five students move into university, within the first two years, this is the picture. When five students from the church, Christ-believing, loving, faithful students, she would still be standing because she's, you know, whatever, multiplying, doing great things for the kingdom of God, discipling. We'll let her sit now. But five out of five, one, one remains by the time university's over. I think just think about that for a second, right? Humorous, but just now think about that. Five of them go off. Five of them head into adulthood. And the numbers are telling us, these are recent numbers, this is the last three years, a broad study, 1,800 in the sample size, and it's contextualized to Canada. Five students go off to university, and only one remains in the kingdom by the time it's over. And so today we're talking about whose responsibility is it. And what Jesus said about these kind of situations is simply pray. The harvest is ready, but the workers are few. And so we need to pray for workers. Let me tell you something. We need to pray for workers. And that's one step of keeping our sons and daughters in the kingdom is the practice of our faith. And this is where I come to the generation before them. How is your practice of faith going? How is it that you serve the kingdom of God? How is it that you're demonstrating those things for those who come after you? One out of five. And is it any wonder that the world is sending us missionaries, right? It's heavy duty today, but there's something that needs to happen. Something needs to change. That's just university world. But there's a whole world out there, 2.4 million students in the country. One in five remain Christian. And we're not seeing those numbers uptick when it comes to folks getting saved. We need something to change. We need something to change in our country when it comes to university campuses, but I would argue we need something to change in our churches all across this country so that we see people coming to know Jesus. And part of that is taking responsibility for the mess that we maybe didn't create or we don't perceive that we created, but there is a mess. There is a challenge at who's going to stand up and make a difference. You see, so many of us today have found a measure of success in our lives, but we are still looking for significance. You might feel empty today, or as Pastor Glenn said, there's a level of pain or burden or challenge. Maybe the bank account is full, but still there is a hunger in your heart because you are good and you are righteous and you love the Lord, but there is a disconnect because you're still seeking for the significance and everything is good, but God, why do I feel this way? Can I just share with you, you might feel that way because there is a big harvest out there, but the workers are few. 
how many people live in the HRM these days? I think when you extend it all the way out to all the suburbs, you're up over 400,000 people. And, and I, I don't know the numbers any longer here in Halifax, but, but I, I, I think I can be confident in saying that we, that we have nowhere near even 10% of that crowd in the, in the kingdom of the Lord necessarily, certainly not engaged in our churches. Who's going to take responsibility for the harvest? There was a spiritual fa- there was a famine at this time, and I would say there's a spiritual famine in our land today. There was a famine in 2 Samuel chapter 21, and there's a spiritual famine here today. Until someone comes along and recognizes their own responsibility towards this situation, like Rizpah. And that's who I want to talk about today, just for a few moments, then we're going to pray together and allow God to lift some burdens off of our lives. Rizpah is someone that took responsibility for what was happening. She took responsibility for what was happening. She took responsibility for the next generation. She knew that this was the law. Really what should have happened in that historical context is they should have wiped out many more than seven. They should have wiped out a whole generation of young men to pay off the blood guilt, to make atonement for And so it's no mistake that they asked for seven, seven being the number of completion. There's a God connection there. And they said, seven, let that be a sign of what Saul had had done to us and let them hang before the Lord. God was a part of this solution. This wasn't just evil. This wasn't just, this was, the Lord was a part of this solution. That's why he said to David, you need to go, you need, this is what you need to do. This is like blood guilt. You got to go figure it out and talk to the Gibeonites. So it was actually merciful that they said seven. And you, there's no record here of Rizpah interfering with that. But the worst part of the punishment, you see, in that time was not the death. The worst part of that punishment was that the Bible says they were to be hung before the Lord. That meant that they would remain there hanging, the bodies hanging in a gruesome state and decaying. And the bones would eventually be scattered by the beasts the wilderness, the animals. Not too pleasant to talk about. And that indignity is what the Jewish nation would have abhorred because it played and messed around with their eternal destiny. Burial was a very important aspect of what took place. The death wasn't the worst part. It was the fact that the bones would have been left scattered. And here comes Rizpah, to take responsibility and to do something about it to ensure the eternal security of her sons. So three things really quick about Rizpah today. Rizpah says, verse 10, Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, the mother of two of the men, spread burlap, depending on your translation, spread burlap on a rock and stayed there the entire harvest. She prevented the scavenger birds from tearing at the bodies during the day and stopped the wild animals from eating them at night. Most translations will say she spread sackcloth. Sackcloth was a heavy burlap. Many of you might know what sackcloth is, but it, it demonstrated pain and suffering and mourning and challenge that something was wrong. You'd take sackcloth and ashes at time to say, I'm in, I'm in pain. I'm in mourning, a very public display. And the Bible says she took it and spread it, stood there and beat back the beasts of the air and of the woods. She spread it and then she stood on it. I think there's a little bit of foreshadowing here. Taking the pain that you might have walked in here today 
and spreading it out publicly. No, I don't think you have to go tell everybody your business, but God has put us in a community for a reason. Romans 12, Paul talks about many, many members, one body, and we all work together for the purposes of God, right? You can read that chapter. We're meant to be in community. We're meant to love one another. He says in that chapter, give preference, verse 12, sorry, verse 10 in chapter 12, give preference to one another. Bear each other's burdens. We've lost something. This used to be a public display, honesty. I'm in mourning. Things are difficult. And one, people would come alongside and cry with them and Celebrate with them in the happy times. And Paul says that again, right? When there's times to mourn, mourn with one another. When there's times to be happy, be happy alongside each other. Here, Rizpah spreads out her pain. And she spread it on the rock. She spread it on the rock. And who is the rock? Jesus Christ. There's some foreshadowing here of Jesus and what he would come to do. She took her pain and spread it out on Jesus. And then she stood on it. She stood on it. Paul says in Ephesians, verse, uh, Ephesians 6, verse 13 and 14, he's talking about the armor of God, and he says in the older translations, having done all to stand, stand therefore. Having done all to stand, stand therefore. And here's Rizpah, a mom who's just lost two sons, crucified, and there's a famine in the land. Things are bad, and she spreads out her pain on the rock Jesus Christ and stands on it and says, you know what? You're not going to have my sons. You might have taken their bodies. You might have taken them away from me, but they will have an eternal destiny, and we need people just like you and just like me to rise up across this country and say, despite my pain, I'm going to spread it out on Jesus no matter what I feel like, and I'm going to stand here and I'm going to push back against the things that want to capture this generation. I'm going to pray for them. And I'm going to reach out and see that they get saved. I'm going to invest in them through ministry. And it may not be young people. Maybe it's the kids or maybe it's uh, the, the professionals in our city here in Halifax. Whatever ministry God has given you to, he's called you to stand. Despite the pain you may feel today, he's called you to stand on Jesus. And he promises that he will empower you by his spirit. Spreading her pain, she stood upon it. And God demonstrated his strength. Romans chapter 8, 26 says, And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. But we've got to admit that we're weak at times and say, Holy Spirit, help me. Nathan sang that song this morning. It's, it's super, though. I lift my weakness to you. And in it, you're glorified. That's what the Bible says. He's made glorious in our weakness and in our pain. Romans 8, 26, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. Ephesians 6, 13 and 14, having done all to stand, stand therefore. 2 Corinthians 9 talks about how he makes us strong when we are weak. When I'm weak, Paul says, I'm made strong by Jesus through the power of his Holy Spirit. You can't tap into that strength unless you're willing to be like Rizpah. Spread the pain out there. Unless you're willing to come on up and get some prayer sometimes. Unless you're willing to reach out to God and worship. Unless you're willing to pick up the phone and call a friend and say, listen, I'm, I'm going through a challenge. I need you to pray for me. Talk about changing the spiritual temperature in a community. If we called one another rather to share about who's doing what and whatever, but rather talking about ourselves and saying, would you pray for me? Rather than calling and talking about someone else and saying, well, I just hope that you'll pray for them, but did you hear what happened? 
How about you talk about yourself? How about I pick up the phone and call my wife and say, Di, I'm going through something today. i got to preach, and I need you to pray for me. Our marriages would change. Our relationships would change. Our churches would change. Someone's got to take responsibility for the harvest. The second point about Rizpah was that her world said she had no voice. Her world said that she had no voice. But God said she had a voice. Her world said there's nothing that you can do. But the gospel says you can do everything. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see, point number two is a question of identity. Rizpah is called the concubine of Saul. If you read the, the, the chapter again, she's called the concubine of Saul. And then it says, and Rizpah, the mother of two sons, took sackcloth. Society viewed her as nothing more than a concubine. No voice, no income, no place, couldn't say anything probably wasn't even allowed at the public execution. But then the Bible says Rizpah, the mother, took sackcloth, spread it on the rock, and stood there. Now, I don't presume, and especially a number of years ago, I would never have presumed to tell a mother anything. But now that I'm married to someone who's a mom, I know, I've seen Diana, quiet Diana, you know, hanging out, and she's happy and all that good stuff, but she's kind of reserved. My wife's a little bit reserved, you know? But, boy, you do something to those kids, and I'm telling you, <laughs> things change pretty fast. Or those kids fall in the playground. I've never seen her run so fast in my life than when Judson falls over off something. He's fine. She's just off. She's gone. And here, the mother of two sons. You see, Rizpah wasn't defined by the identity that society wanted to put upon her. She was identif uh, identifying with the identity that God had given her. She was a mom. She was a mom. She had two kids. And so many times we wrestle with these identities that we have. Who are we? Who am I? What am I called to? And you know what? Jesus has an identity for you. You are a child of God. You are called, and you are meant to be a laborer in this harvest of souls. What's my identity? And I'm all for that. Those of you that know me know that I'm all for you discovering what it is that you're called to do. And I believe we have specific purpose, but I also believe that can be a distraction, that we can get stuck in a, in a paradigm of humanism and thinking about what is inside me and what do I have to give when God is saying, would you just listen to the, the identity that I have given to you? Would you silence the voices around you that say you're this and you're defined by your past and your pain? I'm reminded of the scripture where Paul says, forgetting what is behind and reaching towards the future. I'm conservative. I've been a Christian. I grew up in a church that was conservative. We don't lift our hands. That's fine. But the challenge I would lay out there for you is, have you opened up your heart enough to the Lord? Not that you have to lift your hands, but is the Spirit moving so much in your life that you're overflowing with gratitude, and whatever expression comes out, you're willing to be maybe a little bit undignified, not that you have to lift your hands. That can look different for all of us, and hear my heart in that. It looks different for all of us, but the challenge is honestly before God, have you opened up your heart to all that He is? Not my will, but your will be done. I remember Jesus praying that, and we're meant to imitate Christ 
as his followers, Rizpah was defined by what God said about her, not what people did. We see a similar interaction. I won't read the passage for time's sake, but John chapter 4, when Jesus spoke to the woman at the well, someone who would have been untouchable, someone who would have been defined by all these things that people said and the behavior she engaged in, yet Jesus told her he was the Messiah, announced that news to this woman who had all these husbands and all these challenges. We need to be defined by who Jesus says we are. Last point, third point about Rizpah has to do with dignity. Rizpah preserved the dignity of others while giving up her own. Rizpah preserved the dignity of her sons while giving up her own. She was a concubine for sure. As I said, no place, no voice, but she was looked after. She was in the palace. And here she goes out into the wilderness before the mountain of the Lord, a gruesome scene, bodies hung and mutilated, and there she stands in front of her sons, preserving their dignity and giving up her own. The Bible says that she was there until the time of the harvest. Scholars agree together that that was not a couple of weeks. More than likely, it was a few months living out in the woods, beating back animals. Can you imagine the stench? Can you imagine the scene over the course of those few months, these bodies torn apart, and there's their mother standing in front of them, fighting for them. Come on, moms, you're in the room today, fighting for your kids. Who's going to fight for all these other kids that are on our campuses losing their lives, committing suicide, depressed, addicted to drugs, looking for everything to change their life when we know there's an answer. We need to serve them. We need to preserve their dignity until they have the opportunity to respond to Jesus. And it's the same for your neighbors. It's the same for your coworkers. I'm praying today that the Lord will lift the pain off your lives as you give in to his call today to reach out to touch someone else's life, to take your pain and spread it out on the story of Jesus Christ and stand upon it, even though you don't feel that strength, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you today and empower you. Rizpah preserved the dignity of others while giving up her own, just like Jesus, the Son of God who came down to earth and put on human flesh. Hebrews 2.16 talks about how Jesus, the Son of God, the King of the universe, came down, became a man, so that he could be the full atonement for us, so that he would have knowledge of everything that you and I experience. The Son of God would understand the pain that you and I go through. You see, no matter what you came in here today with, no matter what your situation is, no matter what your challenge is today, Jesus knows all about it. He's experienced it in the fullness of his time here on earth. He knows. He knows. Whatever the struggle is, he knows rejection, challenge, poverty. He knows. Jesus knows. He gave up his dignity to come so that we could have ours back.
The Bible says in Psalm 3 that the Lord is the glory and the lifter of our head. The lifter of our head. You see, God wants to dignify us. Maybe today you came in with a whole lot of stuff going on, addictions, challenges. We use that word in the church, hidden sin. It just means challenges. It just means stuff that other people don't know about, things that you do that no one knows, but they have you all bound up and tied up. Jesus knows all about them, and he looks at you today not with eyes judging you, but just like that woman that was cast before him, after everybody was gone, he speaks to her and says, it's all good. Go and sin no more, but it's all good. Looks at her and speaks to her, dignifies her. Psalm chapter 3, the glory and the lifter of my head. He wants to lift your head up out of the challenges that you face. He wants to dignify you. And Jesus said to us that we're to go into the harvest, right? Go and preach the good news to all and make disciples. And he also said something else when he said that. He said, I'm also going to give you the power to do it. Go and wait for my spirit. Acts chapter 2, it wasn't long that, long, not that long ago that we celebrated Pentecost Sunday. And Acts chapter 2, we know the believers, the, the church really of the day, those that followed Christ were gathered together in a place. And then the Holy Spirit descended upon them. And something miraculous happened, and empowerment came. You see, what's so remarkable about Rizpah is she went out there and stood, and this woman on her own, weak in society, and was able to make a difference. And then Jesus has come, and it was type and shadow in many ways. You know, those young men were hung on a cross. They were hung. And here you have someone coming out and standing and making petition for them. And it was an atonement. And it, there's, there's Jesus is all over that passage of Scripture. And it's foreshadowing Jesus coming and being that atonement for us and giving us our dignity back. And then he says, go and wait for my spirit. It, it's to your advantage that I go to the Father so that the spirit can come. And you see the Holy Spirit is here today to empower. You might think, how can I stand there for? How can I in my pain and challenge get out there and stand up and do something for Jesus? Well, he hasn't left you to your own devices. He's given you the Holy Spirit. It's not by power or might. It's by my spirit, right? Come on. It's not by power or might, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. You see, the Holy Spirit is who we need today. And here in this room, as we begin to wrap up, that's my prayer, is the Holy Spirit would come and touch your life and mine and help us to be like Rizpah, help us to stand for those who don't have their dignity and help to preserve it. The Holy Spirit is who we need. It's not by might or power, but by my spirit. Just direct your attention to the screen for a moment, and we'll wrap up here in a couple minutes. The Holy Spirit is who we need. That man at the end, Gordon Upton, many of you won't know, Pastor Gordon, some of you will know his name. He was one of the officers of our denomination a number of years ago, was a district superintendent in Ontario. And Gordon Upton pastored a church, and he says, the Holy Spirit is who we need. It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. It's a, it's a theme for him. And he was an innovator, and he pastored a church very much like this one. 
And I believe you see that there are many ideas and thoughts and things that this church is going to do and Pastor Glenn is going to lead you in that haven't been thought of before, that are going to be innovative and creative. And that's what Pastor Gordon was all about. But he said it was rooted in the power of the Spirit. So many years ago, before anybody would have thought about doing something like this, it was when we had rotary phones back in the 80s. He was pastoring in Ottawa. And God put it on his heart that people would be able to hear the Word of God whenever they, whenever they needed it, whenever they were going through a crisis. There was no internet. There was no sharing of information that way. And God had this idea in his heart. And he said it was the Spirit. It was the Spirit. And there was no way through our power or might and natural means to do this. And and so, you know, he just kept thinking about this idea, and people would come to him, and, Pastor Gordon, can you, can you share something with me? I need a word from God. And so this just began to ruminate in his spirit. He began to pray about it. And then God gave him an idea. Call Bell Telephone Company. That's what their name was then, Bell Telephone Company. So he calls them up and just says, I don't know, like this, my name is Gordon Upton. I'm a pastor here in the city of Ottawa, and you might have heard of our church, and I don't know if there's a thing that can do this, but... Can you give me some kind of machine that people could call into and hear a message? And they said, well, there really isn't a machine like that, but let's see what we can do. So they build this, and he'll tell the story, they build this massive thing. It was probably as big as me, this huge thing. And he tells a story that all week long you'd hear, like if he was in the church late at night, he would hear this line ringing, the phone ringing, and what people were doing is they are calling to this big thing, now it would be like, I don't even know if it would be a machine. And they'd call it, it would answer, and then they would hear a two-minute message. And you can read a story about this thing in the Pentecostal archives up in Ontario. All the people that called this machine, and they would get two minutes of encouragement. And you can make it, you know what, having done all to stand, stand therefore. And someone would call in. And there's testimony after testimony. I was thinking about committing suicide. My kids were out drinking and partying, and I, I was afraid for them. And they would call into this thing, midnight, 2 in the morning, in the afternoon, and they would get a word from the Lord through Pastor Gordon. Not by might or power, but by my spirit. The, the solution didn't even exist. And why would the company help a church? And who's this guy? And he wants to give a message, but they built this machine and God used it to change lives. And here's Pastor Gordon still talking to us today, age 92, with a two-minute message for you and I. It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. How are you going to spread your pain out there? How are you going to stand upon that, find the energy to do something for the kingdom? Because the spirit of God is going to empower you today. I said earlier to note that star in your text, right? Or there might have been a letter next to the name Merib. You see, God wants to bring his presence here today by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the Bible refers to another character in the story, Merib. Last question. Where was she? She had five sons who were taken out to the mountain of the Lord and killed. But there was just one there, one mom, not two. There was just one mom there, leaping at the birds, can you imagine? Lunging at the beasts, beating them back. But where was Merib? Who was, who was this mom? Well, God's wanting to bring the presence of the Lord to us today. 
Hang in there, Lord. But God is wanting to bring the presence of the Lord here to us today through his spirit. And the Bible records in 2 Samuel chapter 6 an occurrence of the presence of God coming back to a group of people who love the Lord just like here today. 2 Samuel chapter 6, and it says that David, right, this is a story of David bringing the Ark of the Covenant back, bringing God's presence back to the people of Israel. And when he did it right, what does the Bible say about that? Some of you super saints that know the scripture well, what was David doing? He was dancing right before the Lord. He was leaping. His clothes scattered and whatever. He was leaping and he was undignified, right? And then there was someone who was staring out a window at him who was indignant. And her name was Michael. And she was the wife of David. But her name here in this passage is Merib. One in the same. And here she is again, not doing what God was calling her to do, not out there with Rizpah, but indignant. And as the presence of God came back into Israel, 2 Samuel 6, Michael was indignant. Today you have a choice. Will you be Rizpah or will you be Michael? Will you be a little undignified? Give away your dignity today to have something of God sown into your life. Or will you stand on the sidelines like the other mom of the story and let the ark go by? 2 Samuel 6 also says there's a contextual challenge here for those of you who are Bible scholars in the room. And I appreciate that. A little confusion about who this woman really was. But it's clear many Hebrew manuscripts record it's Michael, the same woman. Who are you going to be today? A Rizpah who stands and does battle for those who can't do it themselves. Empowered by the Spirit of God. The presence of God is here today. Wants to move in your life. But it might get a little undignified. You might shed a few tears. You might not understand all. You might have to give up some control. But God wants to change your life. Would you stand with me this morning?